Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Old King Cole was a merry old soul, but could he bring grief to Barack Obama? The guy has got, uh, on the whole, a great uh, platform. Uh, he's raised some questions because of his flirtation with coal, and so people were raising the question, uh, isn't he at least a bit uncomfortable to be consorting uh, with coal company types? Also, his shoes are made for walking, and boy, that's just what he does. London to Manhattan, with a mind-numbing plane ride in between. There's no reason why they couldn't put much bigger windows in planes. There's no reason why the stewards and stewardesses shouldn't wear, you know, Ride of the Valkyrie helmets and the captain shouldn't shout over the PA, Wee! as you take off. Psychogeography, exploring the contours of your mind with your feet. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. And then there were two. It's now to Senators Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton in the Democratic presidential primaries. All along the campaign trail, voters have been asking the candidates how they plan to tackle global warming. Here at Living on Earth, we've been asking presidential hopefuls the same question. This week, it's Barack Obama's turn. His plan wins high marks from some environmentalists, but his connections to the coal and nuclear industries also raise a few eyebrows. Living on Earth's Jeff Young has a report. Boston, July 27, 2004, the Democratic National Convention. In just a few hours, a self-described skinny guy with a funny name, Barack Obama, will deliver an electrifying keynote speech here, catapulting him from obscure state senator to national political prominence. But first, Obama visits Boston Harbor and a small crowd of environmental activists. He thanks them for making his U.S. Senate run possible. You know, we had a lot of important moments in this race, but one of the key moments was when we got the support of the League of Conservation Voters. Obama credited environmental groups with helping him stand out in a crowded primary election contest. Gene Karpinski is the League of Conservation Voters president. When we got in the race, I think it was in third or fourth place in a multi-candidate primary, but we invested heavily in that race. We touted his environmental record. He won that primary, and then he won going away in the general, so we really had a new friend in Congress, a new leader in Congress on the environment that we really helped get there. Do you feel that investment has paid off? Has Senator Obama lived up to your expectations as a senator? Well, clearly, Senator Obama's record since he's been the Senate has been very, very strong. His lifetime score is a 96 percent. He's been very strong, particularly as he's been campaigning on the most important issue, the issue of global warming. The days of debate about whether or not the globe is getting warmer are over. There are about two holdouts left in the Bush White House. On the campaign trail, Obama makes frequent mention of his global warming plan, but rarely goes into details. He would use a cap-and-trade law with aggressive targets to cut greenhouse gas emissions 80 percent below 1990 levels by mid-century. Obama would make polluting companies purchase the credits to emit CO2. 
He'd use that money to invest in green technology and help low-income people meet energy needs. He also sets ambitious targets for energy efficiency and renewable electricity. As for transportation fuels, he'd push a low-carbon fuel standard. That we can reduce our carbon emissions by 10 percent by 2020. That's like taking 32 million cars off the road. That is something that we could do right now. It is well within our capacity. That sounds good to environmentalists, but it doesn't sound all that different from his Democratic competitor, Hillary Clinton. Bob Sussman, a former high-ranking official in President Bill Clinton's Environmental Protection Agency, is now an environment advisor to the Obama campaign. Well, I wouldn't say that the platforms are dramatically different, at least as compared to Senator Clinton. One thing that sets Senator Obama apart is his long-standing commitment to these issues. These are issues that he has worked tirelessly on since his days in the Illinois state legislature. As a state senator, Obama got a perfect score from Illinois environmental watchdogs. And in his first year in the U.S. Senate, Obama faced tough choices on the environment. For example, labor and industry groups from the coal-producing region of southern Illinois wanted Obama to support the Bush administration's Clear Skies proposal. Environmentalists like Karpinski said it would weaken clean air protections. Certainly Senator Obama was getting a lot of pressure from the downstate coal industry, but to his credit, we worked closely with him and he became a real champion in opposing the Clear Skies, the so-called Clear Skies Act from President Bush. However, Obama has come under fire for voting with Republicans on an energy bill in 2005. It gave massive subsidies to many forms of energy, including nuclear power. Obama defended that vote to Tim Russert during this presidential debate broadcast by MSNBC. Did you realize when you were voting for that energy bill that it was going to create such a renaissance of nuclear power? Well, the, the reason I voted for it was because it was the single largest investment in clean energy, solar, wind, biodiesel, uh, that we had ever seen. Now, with respect to nuclear energy, uh, what I have said is that if we could figure out a way to provide a cost-efficient, safe way to produce nuclear energy, and we knew how to store it effectively, then we should pursue it because what we don't want is to produce more greenhouse gases. Obama's also proposed a controversial use of coal. Last year, he co-sponsored a bill to make a liquid fuel from coal that could be used as a gasoline substitute. That was something that uh, riled up uh, lots of environmentalists because of the concern that converting coal to liquid fuel will actually exacerbate the global warming problem, not solve it. That's Frank O'Donnell of the group Clean Air Watch. Obama later said he would only support liquid coal if the final product produced less CO2 than gasoline. But O'Donnell says the liquid coal bill is not Obama's only coal connection. For example, in Nevada, uh, one of his advisors was uh, a fellow named Vasilides, a PR man who was also simultaneously the PR man and ad man uh, for the coal lobby's attempt to make itself look good. And so people were raising the question there, isn't he at least a bit uncomfortable to be consorting with coal company types? The clean coal public relations crews have become regulars at Obama campaign rallies. I ran into Tim Kelly outside an Obama event. He was wearing a T-shirt showing a power cord plugged into a lump of coal. It's America's power. Uh, what we do is promote clean coal technology and the uh, continued use of coal in producing electricity. 
Uh, this is probably the second or third Obama rally I've been to. And Obama's actually uh, supportive of, of some of our same goals. Uh, he believes we have to continue to use coal. But Obama campaign advisor Bob Sussman says critics like O'Donnell are making too much of a few industry connections. Well, I, I don't think there's much of a connection there to worry about. Sussman himself, aside from working at the EPA, spent much of his career as a lobbyist and lawyer for the firm Latham & Watkins. The firm represented coal power companies in their attempts to influence Bush administration rules on mercury emissions and changes to the Clean Air Act. That's true. Uh, I did work for different folks in the energy industry, and I don't consider that to be a bad thing, but it's not a factor at all in anything that I'm doing for Senator Obama now. Senator Obama has been very clear that he doesn't want lobbyists involved in his campaign. That's an excellent line to draw, but people who have worked for industry understand how industry works and have expertise on these issues, have an awful lot to contribute, and uh, they should have a seat at the table along with everybody else. And that's an argument that O'Donnell at Clean Air Watch says he can understand when he sums up Senator Obama's environmental record. The guy has got, uh, on the whole, a great uh, platform. Uh, he's raised some questions because of his flirtation with coal. Uh, and it may be his flirtation with coal uh, may be a microcosm of the reality that you can't deal with some of these issues like global warming without giving a nod to coal. Now, a lot of us wish that that weren't the case, but that maybe that's the practical reality as things ultimately unfold. After all, coal, which provides about half the country's electricity, is not likely to go away anytime soon. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Hey, Jeff, stick around for a moment, okay? I, I want to talk mm -hmm. to you about what's happening in the Republican race, uh, because mm. global warming has been getting some pretty prominent play there, too. It has. Uh, Mitt Romney has really been going after Senator McCain on this. Of course, McCain was uh, the first to propose a cap on carbon emissions. And Romney's uh, really been on the attack, saying, well, this means John McCain's not a real conservative. And he's putting the economy at risk through increasing energy prices. And McCain shoots back that he will trust American entrepreneurs to rise to this challenge and create uh, green energy jobs. So what effect, if any, do you think this is having? I think it's having a big effect, and I think McCain comes out the winner on the whole on this. And, and the way that's paying off for him is in the form of some very important endorsements in some very key states. Mm. You mean like California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger endorsing John McCain? That's exactly what I mean. And, you know, the symbolism of the setting of that endorsement could, could not be uh, more important. Uh, they were touring a solar power facility when Schwarzenegger makes his endorsement of, uh, of John McCain, underscoring the importance of uh, tackling climate change and uh, creating these, you know, green energy jobs. And, and this also paid off for McCain in Florida where uh, Governor Charlie Crist, another Republican who's taken action to cap greenhouse gases, and focus on green energy, uh, endorsed John McCain. And that's a big reason why John McCain won Florida. I, it seems unlikely, but I really think that global warming is turning into the, the stealth issue. And it's a big part of who's going to win the Republican nomination. Hmm, interesting. Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. You're welcome. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent, Jeff Young. And be sure to check out our website, LOE.org, for our coverage of the presidential race and the environment.
Just ahead, turning smokestacks into cash cows. But first, this note on emerging science from Mitrotage. In the battlefield of the future, the uniform might make the soldier. Modern warfare has become increasingly battery-powered, with night vision goggles, network computers, and laser rangefinders essential to basic missions. Indeed, the average U.S. soldier needs 88 AA batteries for a five-day mission. But new technology and the sun might help lighten the load. Researchers in Florida have made a machine for the military that can weave threads made of solar-powered batteries into cloth. This cloth can be made into uniforms to unburden foot soldiers of heavy battery packs and reduce the need for battery changes in the middle of combat. By controlling the temperatures of materials separately, the machine can spin threads out of polymers, metals, and maybe even genetically engineered viruses into intricate nanoscale patterns. Some of these threads are a fraction the thickness of a human hair. When they're made out of battery electrodes and photovoltaic and fuel cells, and then stitched together, they constitute a fabric that captures and stores energy while it's worn. The new technology might help in civilian life too, boosting efforts to make environmentally friendly power sources that multitask. Imagine a jacket that keeps you warm while charging your cell phone. If wearable power catches on, keeping connected in the future might be as easy as getting dressed in the morning and staying on the sunny side of the street. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Mitra Taj. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The CIA's top cybersecurity analyst recently made a very unusual and alarming public statement. According to the agency's Tom Donahue, computer hackers tried to infiltrate and disrupt the electric power grids in several foreign regions, and in some places, they succeeded. Who hacked the grids, where, how, we don't know. The tight-lipped CIA isn't talking. But Alan Paller is. He's the director of research at the Sands Institute, which is a cybersecurity education organization. It was Paller who chaired the mid-January meeting where the CIA's Tom Donahue made his startling announcement. I was shocked because he had spoken for us at an earlier conference about a year and a half ago and swore us all to secrecy. We couldn't tell anyone the kinds of things he was saying. And when he walked into this meeting, he said, I'm going to say something we've never disclosed before, and you can quote me. But why would he make this kind of dramatic statement, especially from the CIA? It, this all is guesswork. Tom didn't say, hey, I'm doing it for this particular reason. He did say he vetted it with all of the senior people, which means that there was a systematic analysis of whether or not it should be disclosed. And the only answer that I could give you is that the problem had become great enough that they wanted the utilities to actually act on it rather than just talk about it. Well, why make it public? Because the heads of utilities get lied to by their technical people. Their technical people say, oh, nobody can get in. We're not connected to the Internet. But we had three people at that same meeting who, for a living, did penetration testing of utilities. And every one of them said they never failed to get in, even when the organization claimed they weren't connected to the Internet. They just don't know all the connections they have. So how do hackers do it? How would they take down, uh, you know, a power supply? Lots of steps, but 
One of them is to get into the computers, and that turns out to be much easier than anybody thinks. In fact, the Government Accountability Office had two reports on how, how much easier the utilities have made it for hackers to get in by starting to use Windows operating systems and connecting their systems to the Internet. So they can get in through the business side, and then they jump over to the control system side. And then once they're in the control system side, they have to learn a lot about the control systems. But it turns out that over the last year and a half, in the very sophisticated hacker conferences, people have been giving speeches about how to hack these sophisticated control systems. They've bought them on eBay. They've found the manuals for them. They figured out how to hack them. So not only am I confident that it happened, but I'm confident it's going to happen substantially more in the future. There was a test at uh, the Idaho National Lab in which hackers were able to blow up a generator, a real generator from a power plant. It was actually the second test like that. The first test was one in which they caused a chemical spill in a chemical plant from a remote hack. This was the second one where they demonstrated that a generator could actually be destroyed. And this is new for most people, the idea that physical damage can be done by cyber attack. But that's what those two tests demonstrated beyond any doubt. So a terrorist could sit in a cyber cafe anywhere in the world, type in a couple of codes, and take down a, a power plant? It's as hard to do this as to learn to fly an airplane into the 82nd floor of a tall building in New York. So my point is, no, anyone can't do it. But if you have enough money, enough time, and enough will, you can learn to do it. And it's not not any harder to do this than it is to fly a jetliner. Well, just around the time that the CIA was announcing this hack, a governmental agency announced, well, it was coming out with uh, eight mandatory measures to plug cyber holes. They did indeed. That, that organization is called FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, and all they were doing was approving a set of measures that the Industry Association, the Association of Utilities, wrote. And it turns out that those measures are not very effective because they don't measure actual security of the systems. They measure whether or not people have written reports about security. So are we any better off now uh, than we were before these eight mandatory measures came out? The people who helped develop them claim that it's a step in the right direction. And my answer to that is it's a step in the right direction, but we're way past the point at which we need to take baby steps. We need to take big steps to protect these these utilities, and we're not doing it. It turns out that almost no utility has the security expertise to protect its control systems. The only ones who do have that knowledge are the ones who manufacture those control systems. So we need to shift the responsibility to those manufacturers, and we're going to have to pay them a little bit to do it. But we need them to take responsibility for securing these systems. Well, Mr. Powell, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. And thank you. Alan Paller is the director of research at the SANS Institute, a cybersecurity education organization that works with government agencies and corporate clients. Even in post-industrial America, smokestacks still define our landscape. There are half a million smokestacks in the U.S. and nearly 48,000 emit heat above 500 degrees Fahrenheit. To Tom Kasten, that's energy literally going up in smoke. His company, Red, sees a lot of green in capturing it. Kasten is chairman of the Illinois-based company Recycled Energy Development, Red. Red buys industrial power plants, 
recaptures waste heat and then sells the power back to the original company at a discount. Now Red wants to expand and sell excess power back to the grid. Thomas Kasten joins me from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago. Hello, Mr. Kasten. Hello, Bruce. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So how much energy is going up in smokestacks? We have uh, an EPA study that says we could make 20% of all U.S. electricity by simply capturing the energy that industry wastes using proven technology, probably could get to 30% with some slight new development of technology. So 20% savings. How many nuclear power plants would that be? Uh, About 65 nuclear stations, which is half the U.S. fleet, could be eliminated. You wouldn't eliminate them. You'd Instead, you'd eliminate uh, something like 120 coal plants. So if I understand the technology, it's really not a new technology. It's cogeneration. Bruce, the technology is very old, and it's the same technology that the power plants use. We basically use the heat to boil water and make steam. We use the steam to drive a turbine, which is the same thing that every nuclear, coal, or gas plant does. And the turbine drives an electric generator... The only difference is they burn fuel and release emissions, and we don't. The plants that we build don't use any fossil fuel. They simply recycle the waste energy out of these stacks you've described or other forms of waste energy and greatly improve the energy productivity. So what's new with RED? We are reaching a point where the options for new power are suddenly very much more expensive. What we've had happen, coal has tripled in price, gas has quadrupled in price, and all of the new options for power are up in the 10 cents a kilowatt hour range, and our projects make sense at 5 to 6 cents a kilowatt hour. So we're entering an era where if the regulators and the politicians will just give clean energy a chance, climate change mitigation will turn into a big economic opportunity. Okay, so what am I missing? Meaning it's too good to be true? Right. Electric generation inefficiency is the elephant in the room. Everybody assumes that the electric just is where it is, but it accounts for 46% of the greenhouse gas emissions. It's the only industry that's subject to monopoly protection. It's subject to more regulation than anything else, and the rules, quite frankly, were designed for yesterday's technology and yesterday's reality. So what one rule on the federal level would you like to see change? The Federal Clean Air Act makes improving energy productivity effectively illegal. Once you have a permit for a plant, if you modify it to make it better, you lose your permit and you have to go back in and get a new permit based on the latest possible technology. And this has frozen the efficiency of all of our heat and power plants since 1976. It is a disastrous rule. We make energy productivity illegal in the largest industry in the country. So you don't want to scuttle the Clean Air Act? Oh, I'm an environmentalist who tries to make my living as a capitalist. I want to have those rules be as cost-effective and as environmentally effective as possible My larger comment is that global warming is such a huge problem, it's hard to believe we're going to solve it if our only answer is that people must make sacrifices. We're offering an approach that profitably reduces greenhouse gases, and that's much easier to persuade people to do. 
to go improve their own economic lot and do good. We just need to be a little smarter about how we're doing these things. So if you could change one state rule, you're in Illinois, what would it be? Each state gives monopoly protection to the distribution and often the generation of electricity. So this giant industry is not subject to competition like everybody else. What is the most important question in energy? Why has electric generation not improved since Eisenhower? And I believe it hasn't improved for two reasons. Number one, it's protected from competition by each state. And number two, the federal approach to clean air makes improving efficiency illegal. That's bad news. But the good news is those rules were made by human beings. They can be changed. So we change the rules and we'll have a little economic boom on our hands. How big can this get? We've estimated that there could be $350 billion spent in the United States on new, efficient, local power plants that recycle energy, and that that would reduce U.S. energy costs by about $70 billion per year, and it would slash total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 20% for the whole country. It would put the U.S. below the Kyoto level, and we'd save $70 billion. So this has the possibility of solving many of America's problems, not just the environmental problem, but defending against foreign energy supplies and keeping jobs here. One of the things that happens when you do this is that the manufacturer gets an extra revenue stream and cuts its costs. I'm just not willing to say, well, the Chinese have lower standards and cheap labor, and so they're going to do all the manufacturing, and we're all going to be Walmart greeters. We have brains in a terrific entrepreneurial system, and this is a way to apply those brains and return our manufacturers to competitiveness. Well, Mr. Kasten, thank you very much. Good luck. Thank you, Bruce. Thomas Kasten is chairman of Illinois-based Recycled Energy Development, RED. And now another story about harvesting waste heat. This time in Stockholm, Sweden, where the average winter temperature is below freezing. Commuters in Stockholm's central station bundle up to fend off the frigid climb. Now there are plans to use the heat their bodies generate in the station to warm a nearby building. Deutsche Welle Radio's Arnie Kopemaki has a report. 250,000 people arrive at Stockholm Central Station every day. Mostly, they are in a hurry since the central station, as the locals call it, connects commuter trains to the municipal subway system. As the travelers race from one platform to the other in their thick winter jackets, the skins work like a giant radiator. One breath has a volume of about half a liter. 250,000 breaths, that's taking account of only one for each commuter on average day, amount to about 135 cubic meters. And this is more than just hot air. It's energy, and energy is money explains construction manager Karl Sundholm. This building doesn't really need heating because of all the people here. We got plenty of lots of heat here that we actually we just get rid of it out in the air. So instead of getting rid of that, we'll pump it over to that building over there. See it there. He's pointing to a flat grey building squatting above the railway tracks. You can see that all the windows are taken out and we're beginning to tear it down from, from the ceiling. It's not really beautiful, I must say. No, it's a quite ugly one. Uh, it's actually been uh, named one of Stockholm's ugliest houses. It's like 25 years old, but it's got very bad uh, isolation and it's very 
low uh, to the roofs and the ceilings. So it's, it's a bad building. We, we have tried to figure out how we could use it in other ways, but uh, no, we, we found out that the best thing is to tear it down and build a new building up. The new commercial building will be known as the Kungs Brewhouse. Karl Sundholm works for Jönhusen, a state-held private company which owns the Swedish railway stations and some of the buildings attached to them, for example, the Kungsbrooplatt. The principle of using hot air to generate energy is not in itself new. Warm air is collected and its energy transformed into hot water by a heat exchanger. But in this case, warm air produced by human bodies will be pumped to another building through a pipe several hundred meters long. The system is simple. It's just a couple of pumps and some pipes. There's no special things needed. There's no rocket science, somebody said. The recovery of body heat will provide about 15% of the heating energy needed for the 13-story, 40,000-square-meter Kungsbrewhouse. The building will have parking lots and a hotel underground, shops on street level and office space on the top. It will be finished in 2010, but Karl Sundholm already sees the ecological heating system as a way of attracting tenants. This could be something that the, the ones who rent these offices could use as a marketing thing for themselves and for their customers. We're sitting in this house and, and we don't use as much energy that we would if we had sat in another house. So it's, we're going to try to help the, the offices to work with their environmental issues as well. Everybody is supposed to profit from their energy recycling, not least the environment. Therefore, the commuters providing the energy seem more than happy to contribute their body heat free of charge. To use people's heat to heat up a building? Sounds nice. Ah, that's a good one. Environmental friendly. Or? Two hours ago I was watching a movie about global warming, so I think that's a good idea. Every pop counts, doesn't it? Just every bit helps. I mean, you get it for free, so yeah, why not? I think that's a very innovative, a creative solution. And it's... Um, cost-effective and also uh, it doesn't create much of an adverse effect to the environment at all. So I would say um, it's a pretty good way to go, as long as the government is not taxing us for that. From the central Stahun, it's only a few hundred meters to the Swedish Ministry of the Environment. Political advisor Hannes Borri offers his visitor water from the tap. The ministry has abandoned bottled water because its transport causes unnecessary carbon dioxide emissions. It's merely a small gesture among a multitude of measures to protect the climate. All in all, the strategy seems to be successful, explains Bori. Sweden is one of the few countries in the Western world that's managed to decrease our emissions of carbon dioxide. Meanwhile, the economy has grown, so we have managed to decouple emissions and economic growth. In Sweden, the yearly amount of emissions can vary quite a bit, depending on the winter. In the cold northern climate, heating takes up a lot of the total energy consumption. Therefore, the Swedes rely on district heating in urban areas, where heat is distributed to the homes from a single, energy-efficient plant. Body heat was first recycled in prototype houses, then in public buildings. This latest step takes it from one building to another. But the Swedes, says Hannes Bori, want to do more than that. On the global scale, we only account for... 0.2% of the carbon emissions. But one of the ambitions of the Swedish government is to establish good examples and good technologies for technology transfers to other countries. For example, if we can use our examples in district heating and renewable fuels and use them in, for example, China, where they build a new coal plant every week, then we can maybe take part in helping out with a solution on the global level.
It's not enough just to solve the problems at home. We have to help with the global solutions as well. Knowing this, commuters at Stockholm Central Station can sit down and relax in the train. Sweaty, but happy to have done a good deed for the environment. Our piece on hot sweets came to us from Arnie Kopamaki, courtesy of Deutsche Welle Radio. Coming up, diamonds are for never. Rice will suffice. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. One of the poorest nations on the planet is also one of the richest in diamonds. And for that, Sierra Leone has paid a price in blood. In the 1990s, the country's diamond mines fueled a decade of terror, a vicious civil war fought for control of the nation's mineral wealth. It's a war many of us know about, but only because of a Hollywood film, Blood Diamond. Seventy-five thousand people were killed in Sierra Leone, tens of thousands maimed, and nearly a third of the population driven from their homes. Now the mud pit diamond mines, which cause so much suffering, are being transformed into fields of rice. The effort is being led by the Foundation for Environmental Security and Sustainability, or FES. It gets most of its funding from the U.S. Agency for International Development. Darcy Glass-Royal is the co-founder and executive director of FES. Ms. Glass-Royal, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, and thank you for inquiring about the work that we're doing in Sierra Leone. Ms. Glass-Royal is in New York City now traveling with Danielle Bundo, who is the head field organizer for FES in Sierra Leone, and a Sierra Leonean himself. Mr. Bundo, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much, and thank you for hosting us. Let me ask you, Ms. Glass-Royal, first. How do you turn a diamond mine into a rice field? It's a bit of a challenge. After many years of digging, the area is left incredibly pitted. It looks like the surface of the moon if the moon had villages. And what we have done is gone through an extensive process working with local communities to hire workers so that we can begin filling in the soil and take areas of land that are not productive and return them to agriculture. Um, You have to understand that the scale of the problem is huge. In the diamond-producing districts, it is just pit after pit after pit, you know, many of them 30 feet deep, maybe a quarter mile across, filled with water during the rainy season, breeding ground for malaria. And so if you go in and you look at the hundreds of acres that are waiting to be reclaimed, you could throw up your hands and say, this is an impossible task. But it was our goal to say that in an area that, because of the rich volcanic soil, can be so agriculturally productive, an area that used to be the breadbasket of West Africa, that there was just no way that the country could continue to grow economically and feed its people without returning to agriculture. Mr. Bundo, what has been the effect of the Civil War upon this area? The the, the township was completely destroyed. Um, I mean... 
systematic burning of houses by street by street, house by house. And um, some houses were bulldozed and mined, and streets were mined for diamonds. Um, diamonds actually fueled the conflict in Sierra Leone at that time. And um, there was just indiscriminate mining all over the place, destroying the streets, destroying the environment. And, and I understand that you actually lost some people very close to you during the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Um, my my elder brother worked in the, in the diamond mines. He was killed during the Civil War. My father was killed during the Civil War. How many acres have you been able to convert? Um, at this point, we've picked three demonstration sites. We've reclaimed about 50 acres total. We've been able to produce, I think, close to 500 bushels of rice at this point. Some communities are also, we've also planted 400 oil palm trees. And in many areas, they have the communities have underplanted with vegetables as well, okra, cassava, other crops that will sequentially mature so that there'll also be other foodstuffs for those local communities. Danielle, can you tell me a story about someone who's been influenced by your work? Maybe someone who you know who's been helped to recover from the Civil War because of this project? Oh, yes. Um, we, we have people who were former combatants and um, so former miners working on our project. And um, they will tell us stories about how they were suffering during the war, and um, but they're getting benefits from our project in part because they're being part of um, this project, which is transforming their lives as well as their communities. They helped to ruin the land in the first place, and they now have the opportunity to put it back into productive um, use. And um, one of them was able to save some money and give to his wife to start um, small business, which is really very important for them because we're talking here about extended family, not a small family like in the United States. We're talking about uncles, aunts, and cousins all living living together. Um, through this project, he has been able to support his wife with some money, and she's trying to um, do small businesses with that money. Mr. Bruno, it seems to me you're in a unique position. I mean, here you are working for this NGO, this non-governmental organization, and you bring together the two worlds. You're helping your country in the process, and you can join it with the kind of this Western association? For me, um, I see myself lucky in a way to be part of this. Talking to my American friends, you talk to them about Sierra Leone, all they know is the Blood Diamond movie. Oh, these guys are just good at killing people. But this project is telling the other side of the story that there are efforts out there to address the problems associated with diamond mining, environmental problems, social and um, problems, health risk in um, 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 Sierra Leone. And I see this as an opportunity that I am part of it, one, to help transform my society, and two, to help spread a message that there is another side to diamond mining in Sierra Leone. It seems to me, Ms. Glasswell, that this project isn't just about land use. This project is about transforming communities and bringing stability and growth to a fragile but very critical part of the world. Darcy Glass-Royal is the co-founder and executive director of the Foundation for Environmental Security and Sustainability. Danielle Bundo is the head field organizer for FES in Sierra Leone. Well, I want to thank you both very much for joining us. And thank you for hosting us. Thank you very much for having us here. A few years 
years ago, novelist and journalist Will Self decided to take a walk. He walked from South London, where he lives, to the Lower East Side of New York City. Oh, he took a plane all right from Heathrow to JFK, but Will Self walked from city to airport and airport to city, practicing what's called psychogeography. Will Self may be the world's foremost practitioner of psychogeography. In fact, today he may be one of its only practitioners. In his latest book, he invites you to meander with him. It's called Psychogeography, Disentangling the Modern Conundrum of Psyche in Place. The book's a collection of essays about Will Self's wandering by footmobile. Will Self joins us from the BBC studios in London. Will, it's good to have you on the show. How do you do? You're in a BBC studio in London, right? Yes, I am, indeed. Did you walk there? I did. <laughs> I did walk here. I would have cycled, but I have a, a new dog and the dog needed to walk. How far is it? Oh, it can't be much more than a mile and a half, something like that. Oh, so that's just a walk around the block for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what is psychogeography? Well, the term derives from the French situationists and specifically from a man called Guy Debord. And he said that, you know, modern society is a kind of spectacle and specifically modern cities are defined and we start to see them as a function of, of our human geography, where we eat, where we sleep, where we buy, where we go to work, and we can no longer see them for what they are. So his idea was that, that psychogeography would in some way deconstruct the urban environment. We'd start to see cities for what they really are again, rather than what the powers that be want us to see them. And, and the, the major tool of the, the psychogeographer would be their feet. Absolutely. I mean, Debord and the, the original situationists used to practice what they called the derive, which basically consisted of, you know, meeting up at the Parc de Bouchaumont in the north of Paris, buying a few cheap bottles of red wine, getting drunk and drifting down to the Ile de la Cité in the Seine, where they'd sleep it off. Well, how does walking to an airport, getting on a plane and then walking from the airport to the city, how does that illustrate what psychogeography is about? Well, it does it in, in many, many different ways. I mean, I, I've, I've walked from, from my home in central London to Heathrow Airport on three occasions now. And I think the first time I did it, I had the definite sensation that uh, I was undertaking an act of exploration more profound probably than anybody can do anywhere in the world in the sense that I was taking a journey uh, using a means for that journey that probably nobody had, ever, had done since the industrial era. Uh, and yet I was traveling the same kind of route, roughly, that tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of millions of people make every year. So there's this marvelous sense that one gets of being cut off from the great mass of humanity in this very, very simple, very self-directed way. You, you, you don't need any equipment. You don't need any fancy uh, accessories. You can just get out of your chair and do it, and you're instantly exploring in that way. You're finding out new things about your environment. The business of the what I call the, the airport walks uh, goes further, though, because the most curious sensation I had on when I walked to Manhattan, and as you said in your introduction, I walked to Heathrow, flew to JFK, and then walked from JFK through East New York, through Brooklyn, over the Brooklyn Bridge, and, and into the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Well, when I got to my hotel in, in Manhattan, uh, you know, the body, I think this is kind of aspect of evolutionary psychology, the, the body's conception of space is stronger than the mental conception of space. So that three and a half thousand mile plane flight was as nothing compared to those two full days of walking. 
So my body was telling me that I had been walking on a continuous land mass. My body was telling me that the Thames estuary had been rammed into Long Island in a, in a kind of unholy miscegenation of continents. Uh, and the body was, was far stronger than the mind. I really thought, wow, I've, I've walked the whole way here. And, and that, for me, was, was a, a marvelous and epiphanic moment that was incredibly destructive of this life that, that I've led, and I think a lot of us have led, where we're catapulted about the globe in these uh, these aluminum and titanium tubes, and we're, we're, we're traveling all over the place, and yet we don't really know where we are. It's interesting. On airplanes now, on the backs of the seat in front of you, you can see um, you know, a map, and you see yourself traveling virtually over this place, but for all intents and purposes, you're just this, in this hermetically sealed airplane. Yes, and I, I think it's a, it's a virtuality. I mean, everything about modern flight, which I've expatiated on elsewhere in that book, is in fact designed to make the experience boring and dull. It's designed to virtualize it within a corporate environment. You know, there's no reason why they couldn't put much bigger windows in planes. There's no reason why why the, the stewards and stewardesses shouldn't wear, you know, ride of the Valkyrie helmets and the captain shouldn't shout over the PA, wee, as you take off. You know, they don't want you to be excited. They don't want you to know where you are. And, and in, in a sense, nobody really wants to know where you are or wants you to know where you are. You know, pe- people who travel for business especially may go to many different cities in a year and apart from a tiny little grid of streets around their hotel they'll have no real sense of orientation. This line jumped at me actually and I was surprised to read it. You you write that the place chooses you. It's not so much that you choose a place. I'm not sure whether I mean that literally but what I think I do mean is that again we live in a culture where place is sold to you you know, that we're kind of accessorized by place. People say, oh, I went to X or I went to Y or the beaches are fabulous at Z or they've got fantastic ethnic jewelry and P and why don't you go to M? Uh, you know, they're products. Places are products and, and travel magazines and travel journalism is by and large a catalogue of these products that's sold to us and people acquire place as they might acquire any other object in that way. You know, their, their memory, uh, their digital cameras... Uh, you know, they're loaded up with these vignettes of place, just as any collector might show you their Sèvres pottery or their beer labels or whatever it is they collect. And I think that, you know, in order to have a profound relationship with place, again, coming back to this idea of kind of knowing where you are, you have to look for those places that choose you in that way and say, you know, you're not going to be here for a day or so or a couple of days. You're going to have an evolving, perhaps a lifetime relationship with me. I'm a place that you want to know about. And I think, you know, for all of us who who think about, about the world and who think about our place in it, that, that that's true, that has a resonance. And when I look back over my own life, I mean, you know, a couple of the places that I've come to think of as kind of my places over the years, I didn't even like them when I went there. It wasn't about liking. It wasn't necessarily about having a good time. There was something more profound going on there. Can you um, experience or, or practice psychogeography uh, on a bicycle? Well, bicycles are interesting, <laughs> interesting intermediate technologies. Uh, I use a bicycle all the time. That's how I tend to get around in London. I think that the, the problem for the psychogeographer is that they, there is something about walking. It, it is my absolutely preferred method of investigating place. I think it's it slows one down. I think walking has... It wasn't me who coined this idea, but I think it might even have been Rousseau. I think walking has the pace of thought in that way. It has the 4-4 rhythm. 
It, it has a strophe and an anti-strophe in that way, and, uh, and I think there's something about that. I, I find when I get on a cycle, I, I tend to fall victim to wanting to get from A to B. It seems to me that if you're walking to airports and getting on planes, you must be traveling pretty light. Well, yeah. I mean, when I was in North America last year, I was away for two, two and a half weeks, and I didn't take anything at all. Uh, that was a bit extreme, and I did that as a, a conceit in a way. I was interested in this idea of, of our relationship with with material possessions. And, I, and, and you know, you, you go into airports and you see people with, with 22 sets of sense, matching Sensomite luggage, and you kind of think to yourself, or I do, you know, what's going on here? Are they taking, like, all their pence to Paraguay? Is it to show their pence to Paraguay or Paraguay to their pence. There's something kind of going on here with this movement of chattels. So I was kind of reacting against that. Uh, but, you know, even ordinarily, I, I, I've been well below a standard carry-on bag for years now. Where's your next walk going to take you, Will? Well, the coast of East Yorkshire in, in England is the fastest eroding coastline in Europe. It erodes two metres every year. So it should be possible, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, for me to take this walk down the east coast of Yorkshire, uh, knowing that nobody will ever be able to take that walk again, that, that by the time next year comes, that bit of land will have gone. Well, Will, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Will Self's new book is Psychogeography, Disentangling the Modern Conundrum of Psyche in Place. It features 50 illustrations by gonzo graphic artist Ralph Steadman. On the next Living on Earth, Thor She Blows. You, you understand your place in the wild world when you study whales. You know, we all think it's all about humanity, and yet you get out on the ocean with some of these whales, eyes the size of a grapefruit, little wrinkles, and they're looking at you saying, you know, you're an intelligent species, look at my lifestyle. Whales and the fate of the oceans, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the county of Devon in the Dartmoor National Park in the southwest of England. Local shepherds call up their border collies to bring in the sheep from the moors for shearing. This CD, Sounding Dartmoor, was recorded by John Drever. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler and Sarah Calkins. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rosano. Today's show was engineered by Noel Flatt. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find this at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, 
the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.